Miss Ochoa, I have a question for you today. And this question is, I want you to relay a time that you can think about that represents the answer to this question. And the question is, when was a time that you have felt like no matter what you did, you were misunderstood in your actions? Was there a particular time? You don't have to be specific, but was there a specific time of your life and your career where it really felt like things just anytime you made an action, said something, did something, you were just misunderstood. And it was almost like a a losing battle, no matter what you did. Yes. That's the time. <laughs> you need to ask your questions where they're more open-ended, Jacob. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> there was a time. I know you want me to elaborate. Um, specifically, I would say probably, gosh, I think it was after I really got in and under started understanding workshop in a way that was different from all the people around me. Does that make sense? In other words, it was, you know, I really Nancy Atwell it quite a bit. And because I really based everything on Nancy Atwell, Laura Robb, and Lucy Calkins, and then, of course, Abydos, as far as how I understood it. But I also transferred that information to my geography classes, as I told you, I think, last time that I did English and geography. So being misunderstood, I, I worked really hard if you will, to make sure, maybe not to promote myself, but to make sure that I was doing everything the way I wanted to do because I really loved this one principle that actually put me in this position. And uh, But there were some undercurrents of politics going on, and none of these people are in our in our district anymore. So when I'm talking about them, I don't even know if they're teaching or what they're doing. But... Uh, my department chair didn't quite understand what I was doing. And so she had, I had one lady that was in trouble and she goes, Oh, you're okay. You're a goody two shoes. And I I remember telling her, I said, Oh no, I work really hard to be a goody two shoes because I know at any moment the floor will drop. What I didn't realize was when this, it was this moment in time where we were building, I had, well, let me just go back because you've got me in a, I've got too many memories showing up. So when I was working at this one school, right, one of our high schools, the one you graduated from, uh, I had about 176 kids. We were running about 42 to 37 a class. And I was teaching English and geography. We were packed. I wasn't the only teacher, but I know that I was the one that had the most at that point because it was mentioned in a in a meeting. But I had, uh, they built this other school. And it was funny because my dad, um, my, my family's very strong in, in their beliefs. You know, they're a strong family there. And my my dad was like, Do you, are you going to go to this new school? And I said, no, dad, I don't fit in with that group that's going over there. I already knew kind of who was going over there and I already knew they misunderstood me. Does that make sense? It didn't matter what I did. It was this, I don't know what caused it, but I was not a part of their group. And uh, he goes, well, if God wants you to be there, he'll just pick you up and move you. And I said, yeah, I guess so. And we went on about our business. And um, three weeks later, the superintendent called me into his office and actually moved me to this new school. 
the superintendent. I was not hired. I was moved. And I was teaching. I was the first one in our school, in our district, actually, to have laptops in the classroom. I was the one chosen by the superintendent. He got me. And uh, But I think it caused a political situation. And so no matter what, I was always, it didn't matter what I did. They couldn't understand how I was successful because they thought what I was doing was ridiculous, which was workshop. And the reason I know this is because like we would sit in meetings and my department chair would say, oh, some of us are from Venus and others are from Mars. And then she would look right at me. And I mean, it was stuff like that all the time. I even had the uh, people that were um, a part of the technology group. They were like, well, I don't know if they like you here because they, I don't think they understand what you're doing. And so I think I was misunderstood. And like they would give me uh, all Spanish speaking kids this one time. I had a whole class of them, but instead of putting them out in the hallway or doing whatever, I, I uh, learned a little bit of Spanish and I, I helped them. And next thing you know, we were all successful. So they were like, I don't know how you did that. So let's try this one. And then they would give me some other kids. So it was the workshop model that I was using that caused me to be successful beyond their understanding. Does that make sense? No matter what happened, it was always a success. And so I think I I credit it to the workshop model. And I think that it just uh, dumbfounded them. They didn't quite understand. But now our district is promoting, you know, workshop model. And so, but I was there before it was promoted and old uh, Madeline Hunter way of doing things was exactly what they wanted. It was not student-centered. It was more of a stage on the stage type setup. And I did not fit in with that group. So I don't know if I answered your question appropriately or not, uh, but I love everybody I worked with, even those people that misunderstood me, just for the record. (laughs) I don't have any ill feelings. Right. (laughs) There you go. I appreciate your stories as always, Miss Ochoa. But for everyone who doesn't know, that's Pam Ochoa. I'm Jacob Chastain. We are the host of the Craft and Draft podcast. We are two seventh grade English teachers down here in the state of Texas uh, doing our thing, talking about workshop, loving workshop, doing all of the teachery uh, wonderful tasks that we do. But we, we jump on the podcast and we answer questions from you guys and try to tackle big topics, small topics, and everything in between. And... First of all, I want to say, if this is your first time listening, our audience has been growing. Shout out to those of you who keep finding the podcast, sharing the podcast, everything. It really is awesome to see the the growth of the Craft and Draft podcast. Thank you for those of you who have already rated the podcast over there on iTunes. Hit that follow button in podcast, which I just realized. I don't know where I've been, where the connection is, but I always tell people to hit the subscribe button. I'm pretty sure that it's a follow button. So uh, I'm going to have to start changing my vocabulary a little bit, but it is (laughs) the follow. The only reason I know that is because on my end when, because, you know, obviously I subscribe to craft and draft and teach me teacher and stuff. And I, I, I do it to check that everything's good and see what it's like on the, on the listener side. And my teach me teacher didn't update for me. So I unfollowed it and then followed it again or unsubscribed or subscribed. And I was like, oh, that button changed. So didn't even know. So hit that follow button that we don't miss anything. We release an episode every single Friday. Uh, we answer questions from you guys. If you want your question answered on the show, like some people are today that we're going to get to, uh, you can submit questions to me directly. You can send it through the Facebook. You can comment. You can also su- do it at submit a question at craftandraftworkshop.com right at the top. But today is going to be 
filled with us addressing some ideas from listeners of the show. And the topic of the show is really going to come down to uh, controlling uh, the writing workshop in a way that allows for choice and everything, but without chaos ensuing and actual learning happening. So we're going to see if we can work through that. And that is inspired by a listener question, which we'll get to in a moment. But we have two smaller questions that we need to get to before we start. But everyone, this is Craft and Draft. Welcome. All right. So hey, uh, what I, I just want to interrupt. I'm so go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. But there is no question too small. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> Stated. Keep going. <laughs> All questions are valid questions. Very good. That is correct. All righty. So there's one about writing. We're going to use that one in a second. There's two about writing. So those are going to merge into each other. But we have a, a question that I don't think we've ever addressed um, on the podcast. So let's do this one first. Um, this one is from Melissa over there on Instagram. She said, hey, I love your podcast. Can I ask a question? Of course. She goes, I'm a college adjunct looking forward to getting my state teaching certification. I'm almost done. Have you or can you give me some idea of standard work life balance for a school teacher? For example, are there blocks in the school day for you to do lesson plans and trainings? How much time after the school day ends are you spending on admin slash planning work? Do you work through school breaks and holidays? I'd be so thankful to learn so I can energetically prepare myself. Thanks. So this one, yeah, last week we talked about the, the workshop kind of format and schedule, and now we're just going to talk about the teacher schedule. So this is an interesting thing because there are a lot of people who find, you know, they're, they're people going through college or doing whatever. Maybe sometimes they're even high school people and they want to be teachers and they find podcasts like these and they listen and they're like, oh yeah, this is the world of teaching. But oh, I don't think I've really ever addressed kind of how things are set up in, in the teaching world in terms of schedule. So I'll, I'll pitch it to you though. Well, how, how would you describe your, your teaching schedule in general? What are the, the times where you work the most? Do you just work constantly? How's your work-life balance in terms of your actual schedule? My work-life? Well, I mean, you know, you always have that one hour off at least or 40 minutes, the class period. And of course, well, in so Texas, hang, they, let, yeah, oh, go ahead, ahead. Sorry. Go, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, in Texas, you have a certain amount of hours that you have to have or minutes that you have to have per, what, I guess, two weeks. You probably know more about that since you're freshly out of your administrative certificates. <laughs> no, y'all didn't talk about that law. <laughs> there is a law. <laughs> we probably did. <laughs> we probably did. Well, when you become a principal, you'll know more about that. So anyway. But I know that there's so many minutes. So, uh, but yeah, typically I get, I, I get to school, what, about 7.30, 7, between 7.30 and 7.40. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually start teaching at, what do I start teaching at? It was about 9.20. So that is my conference period in the morning. So I'm busy trying to make sure I have everything uh, working the way it's supposed to work. I'm usually on the computer for a second. I make sure I look at any emails. Hopefully I hadn't forgotten any. The problem with having morning is I always send your emails somewhere in the afternoon and I don't always get those until the next day. And so I'm always worried that I'm about to miss one. But um, but I get all my copying done, things like that. As far And my lesson plans, I try to work on those. But we do that every day. And then we have... Um, and then what I do is I have two blocks, then we have leadership time, and then I have 
I meet, I have to meet with Mr. Chastain uh, every day. And then uh, for our PLC. And then after that, I have another block, another two hours. So, And then from there, we might have duty. And uh, from there, I'm doing my other job. So I'm usually running out of there pretty fast during volleyball season because I officiate volleyball. You get in typical fashion, and you have a conference period, whatever that is. And mm-hmm. um, this is middle school too, so it's a little different for elementary, um, but and high school. But the you know we have our conference period, and then we have a PLC period. Not every school has a PLC. Um, no, that PLC time is isn't our like planning time. PLC for people who don't know is you know professional learning community. Um, uh, some of our ELA people like Reggie Routman who say. Uh, the PLC professional uh, literacy uh, community and things like that. But in general, the PLC is time for data and vertical alignment and everything else, like doing stuff where you're learning together. Um, so not everyone has that, but we have those two times. Uh, but I, I want to ask you, Miss Ochoa. So I, she, she seems, she's asking specifically about work life balance. So how would you say that is, I know you, everyone who listens to the podcast and I obviously know you do volleyball. You had like 6,000 games today. Um, so let's ignore that six. part. Yeah. Let's, let's ignore the extra stuff that you do and the extra stuff that I do. But in terms of teaching, how often do you work um, in non-teaching hours? So off contract. So our contracts technically are from like 815 to 415. Um, so what how, how would you how much would you say during a week do you actually work outside of those hours? Is do would you say it's a lot or none? Well I think it I think it kind of waxes and wanes. It just depends on how far ahead I can get. So some parts of the school year, I'm working a lot more than I am others. Uh, So I don't know how to put that in hours amongst the week, but I do my 20 to 30 minutes before school in the morning because that's usually when I'm the most fresh. And then I come home and I have to just stop for a little bit. I eat and then I might work for another hour or so after home, but not every day. So at least maybe three times a day I'm working at home at night. Yeah, I would and, I'd say I'm kind of the same way, though, is I, uh, I obviously my conferences in the morning, just like you first period. And so I get a lot of work done there. But in terms of like planning, like I, I probably spend, I don't know, really no more than three hours planning on like Sunday to get like the week planned out in the way I want to. Um, it used to be longer. There's times where it is longer. There's times where it's a lot shorter. It just depends on the week. Mm-hmm. Um, so three hours there. And then I would probably say, you know, I leave almost every day, no earlier than five. And I know this is really naughty to say in the teaching world because people are like, leave at your contract time. But, you know, I need time to decompress from a day of teaching and I don't need to leave right away. And I need to kind of think about how the day went and, you know, decompress Mm -hmm. with the you guys and my team and everyone. And sometimes that, that stuff's really important to me. And like just coming together and talking about the day, whether it was good, bad, you know, telling, swapping stories of what was that crashing noise that we heard at 11 (laughs) o'clock that no one came and checked on us for. But, uh, so I would say, you know, I like where my balance is. I don't feel like I'm overworked and I go home and, you know, I'll leave, let's say I leave at five 30. Sometimes I will go home and, like you said, kind of rest and stuff. And then I'll work a little bit more. I'll, I'll prep the day. And it's not like I'm working nonstop. It's like, you know, I'm 30 minutes here, an hour there. But I would 
I would say it's pretty balanced. I think it really just depends on what teachers do. Like it, when I'm staying till 530, I'm not working that whole time. Like some people could probably be a lot more efficient than I am. I just happen to not have really much else to do other than work. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like I, I ignore my chores pretty well. So I think that, uh, that, that affects it quite a bit, but I don't know. I, I feel like work-life balance isn't too bad. I would say I probably work maybe, I don't know, 10 hours a day, maybe. Yeah, I could. I mean, I just know that, um, you know, when my husband was with me, he would always complain if I came home after five. And but there were some days I was finished right at four fifteen. I could get home pretty quick. But because he didn't understand our schedule, I'd always make sure I showed up at five, <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> because then that was less uh, of a conversation I had to have. <laughs> So he just got where he expected me at five because his idea of a work day was nine to five. He couldn't understand why I was already getting there at seven 30 to five. But, but no, I, I think part of it is it doesn't feel like work if it's something you enjoy doing and I enjoy cleaning. I mean, I like looking at my stuff. I like coming up with lesson plans and lesson ideas. Uh, don't always like being under the gun by having it all typed up perfectly before, you know, and so uh, it depends. That's another thing that, that makes a difference in your workload is how much they want you to have typed up and at what point is everything due. Uh, but I, I would say the, the most important thing as far as paperwork is, is if you're expected to do it, you need to get your paperwork done and get your paperwork done and nobody will say anything to you typically. Show there, show up on time, leave. But you know, the thing is, is you can't leave if you need to. Uh, at four, you know what I mean? It's it's not like yeah. you're having to stay there. I mean, there's I mean, nobody making you stay. I know some teachers thing. who never take anything home. You're right. And I, I think that's important for people to, for getting into this profession too, is you can, you can be as filled throughout the day or as spacious in, in terms of your, your work life. Like it, it's pretty mm-hmm. flexible. I mean, as long as you're getting done what you need to get done in the time, who cares when you're leaving as long, I mean, if, if contract time aside, like after your contract time and after whatever obligations you have, like that's you. So I choose to, you know, work at home and do these things on the weekends all the time, but there's people who that would drive them, that would make them miserable. And I feel like teaching, teaching is as time consuming as you allow it to be. And that's, that's, uh, that's hard to accept sometimes because sometimes it feels like there's a million and one things to do, but here's the thing, like things, things aren't going to fall apart. (laughs) It might feel like they are, but you can go home and you can shut it off and you can't, you can not think about it until the next day. And I think it's just, uh, when you're in the zone, first year teachers are probably never going to feel like that. But once you get comfortable, you know, you kind of make your time what it is. Melissa, hopefully that answered your question. (laughs) If not, maybe it made um, it worse. Yeah. I don't know. Email us back. So two more, we have another question from Amanda and this connects to our topic of the show, uh, here in just a minute when we get to that question. But Amanda says, what do you do when students write something inappropriate? She says, I have a student regularly writing racist stereotypes into a fictional story. He also wants to share the entire story with the class every day. And of course he does. The moment, (laughs) the moment I read that comment, I was like, yep, I can picture this student, right? The one, the one, uh, the shock jock of the class trying to get 
um, you know, trying to get the attention and, and everything else. So good Lord. When, when kids write inappropriate things, Miss Ochoa, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had a yeah, student well, push the boundaries in their writing? Yeah, there was one time I had this, I mean, it was all GT. It was a total GT reading class or English writing class, whatever. Anyway, block class. So, but I had this boy, he wrote, he wrote his paper and, and it was like, four pages he decided he loved to write and so anyway of course you know who wants to read four pages if it's you know if you're busy but uh i i read it and sure enough right there smack dab in the middle is some sort of sexual type thing description of stuff and he's a sixth grader so but anyway i pulled him aside and i said uh can you go ahead and explain how this fits into your whole entire paper? Because I'm not really seeing the connection between your thesis and this. And he goes, oh, well, nobody's ever read my papers before. You're the first one who's ever done it. That's actually caught me doing it. And I was like, well, there you go. Let's not do it again. Now, you know, I read them. So, or if I see it again, I mean, because it was actual, so it was, it was really, truly inappropriate. And I said, if I see this again, you know, these are the consequences and your mother will be called. So I'll let you know, my discussion this time, let's not do it again. But that was his reasoning. He wanted to, he did it to see if I was actually reading it because he was tired of putting his effort into it and nobody reading that second, third page because he he was the prolific, I mean, he, it was good what he was writing. And all of a sudden this little sentence or two was in there. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'll always remember him. And there's other things too, but that was one that came to mind. I, it, it's so interesting that, uh, you know, it's kids are, kids are so funny in so many ways, but you know, one of the things that, um, that, that comes to mind is because I imagine she's trying not to kill their, their choice. Right. She really, right. She's, she has this kid writing. She's like, Oh my God. Like, you know, we don't know what the racist stereotypes are, but, um, you know, obviously, uh, it's, it's kind of a no go. And here's the thing we've talked about, um, kids, having their freedom and, and what that means in workshop before. And that's what we're going to talk about here in a minute as well. But there is also a wonderful conversation to have with kids about uh, time and place and audience. Right. Um, because part of freedom is also understanding how that freedom alters depending on your situation. Um, you, for instance, uh, you know, you don't speak the same way you do to your friends as you do to teachers and your grandma and everyone else, or at least most people right. don't. We we change how we uh, speak depending on where we're at. And I think it's really, you know, you can flip this into a great mm -hmm. lesson of, uh, you know, like one, I would actually start with why are they writing it anyway? Is there right. intent? Like, are they, do they know their racist stereotypes? Like, are they aware of the harm that these stereotypes have on people? Or, uh, cause if they're not, then that's, that's an easier conversation in my opinion, because you can just have that conversation about, Hey, these are like offensive. <laughs> Like, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what you, yeah. What, what is your intention here? Um, that's what I did with that boy. I asked him, why did you do this? Yeah. 
was honest. Nobody's well, and, ever read his stuff before. Intent is a really important thing just in mm-hmm. teaching in general because if their intent is to actually be harmful with their words or speech or actions, then that's a different conversation than someone just being ignorant of – what their actions are being causing. So I, I think, first of all, find out the intent. And if, if they really are trying to be just, you know, make racist jokes or, you know, use racist stereotypes to get a rise, then I think it's a great conversation to have with the student about, um, venue and, and purpose and talk about how, you know, we, we have classrooms with people who are from different backgrounds and, uh, different races and you, you need to be mindful of those things because we're, we're a community. This isn't, this isn't a free for all. We all have to get along. We have to do that and, and really have that conversation. And then, you know, if, if the student persists and they know they're trying to cause harm, then that I think does warrant, you know, a wonderful parent teacher conference where you bring that stuff up and have the conversation in a broader context, because even though we're advocating for freedom of choice and freedom of expression and all of that stuff, an empowering student voice, there's still kids and they're still in school, right? Like there's, there's obvious limitations on certain things. And, um, you know, obviously like sexual, uh, nature stuff kind of, that's kind of like an immediate red flag and mm-hmm. racist stuff is immediate red flag. And then depending on the age group, um, profanity and the way you phrase certain things is, is a red flag. It really depends on where you're at. I think profanity fly. Once you're hit middle school, it becomes sketchy. I've said this on the podcast before, and I know people disagree with me, but I think using certain things correctly, um, is, is fine if they're being done, but in most cases it's a, it's a red flag as well. So I'm not sitting here just blatantly giving a, a go ahead for all kinds of speech, but that, that would be my thinking, right? Intent, um, try to rationalize, talk about audience, talk about purpose. So keep it within the workshop language that we use. Right. And rather than being mm-hmm. punitive, be like, you know, this is we're, we're writers and we're publishers here. And this is just, this isn't the audience for this type of stuff. Right. Try to go that route. And then, you know, if it, if it is an actual issue, then bring in some outside forces to really, um, shut it down. I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that before we move on? Yeah, I've been known to say classroom appropriate and let's discuss what that means. And uh, so before they even write, because, and also because sometimes they'll write things that are, would cause me to cause uh, call in the crisis counselor too. So I think all of that falls under there. So what, what is your intent? I, I like that. And then, um, but what's classroom appropriate? And keep in mind, this is my role as a teacher in school. Uh, if I see things that might be harmful, you need to know that I will be, you know, taking it to keep you safe. I'll be, I'll be reporting it if I need to, not to shut them down. But I mean, then I know if I've said that and they put something in there, then I know they're calling for help. Right. So I I have been known to just talk a little bit about what is classroom appropriate, like you said. But I like how you have have chosen to talk talk about it through audience and venue and intent. And I think that really is a, a great way to handle it. All right. Well, let's move on to our question that inspired the topic of this whole thing. And this really connects to that as well. So Amanda, if you're listening, I think this next conversation um, will also connect to this idea. But Jamie messaged us. um, And this question was so good. We were like, yes, topic. 
says, hi, Jacob hi. and Pam. I love your podcast. I'm a seventh Thank grade. You. Yes, I'm a seventh grade ELA teacher in Sacramento, California, with two very big questions about workshop. I've never taught a true writer's workshop where I give students absolute 100% free choice to write anything they want because I'm not sure how to guide their writing if all students are writing different genres and purposes. Uh, by the way, I love that she said purposes in there. That's like that's like a, for a go-to sign that someone is thinking correctly about workshop, right? That, right. that purpose idea. Yeah. But I, she says, I know I can do a variety of quick writes to give students ideas for what to write. But I'm not sure how to design many lessons once everyone is working on different things. Do you ever limit their choice to a specific genre? For example, I'm considering limiting their choice to narrative, but they can write nonfiction, personal narratives, or fiction. I want to embrace free choice, but I'm fuzzy on how to carry the process out once they all once they're all writing in their own new direction. I have 150 students and I confer with them, but I can't do it most. Uh, I can't do it more than once per month at most, and I don't have enough to confer with every student in every cycle of writing. So she has quite a bit going down. What do we got? What do you think about this? So let's. Well, I guess we can break it down. So the first things first, do you ever limit genre, Miss Ochoa? Well, I, I do follow the curriculum. You know, I'm a little somewhat tied about that at times. So if the curriculum is genre-based, then... Um, I will let the students know we need at least one piece in this genre and then the rest of it's their choice. Mm -hmm. So I've done that before. Uh, I think I do my pre-writing strategies in such a way that they, they kind of sponsor a type of genre. So I've done that as well. So I've kind of have facilitated a little bit or manipulated, however you want to call it. Um, to get the students to follow the curriculum somewhat. But uh, if they go in a route that, let's say they write a poem, and I don't really need a poem because according to our district stand, our scope and sequence, we're not doing poetry until January, let's just say. And uh, I think it's actually December, but that's okay. So if they write a poem, I don't, I don't tell them not to. What I do then, as I said, let's look at your poem. What's the topic of it? Is there a way that we can turn that into nonfiction? So they write their poem, but then they pull out their topic, and then I, I give them, uh, we'll help them find ways to research that topic and find statistics and and uh, facts and examples and things like that, and then uh, ask them to rewrite it in a different format and a different genre and see what come see what comes out. That's one thing I do. I uh, th this concept is really interesting to me because I feel like this is the the ultimate battle of uh, mm -hmm. the workshop teacher because de depending on how wide you want to go, but I, I think that just tweaking how we think about this really does help because in she's in California, so I'm not. Um, familiar with the standards in California. Uh, I imagine they're common core. Right. Yeah. Um, possibly not, but I, I imagine they are. But um, our and I, Common Core standards aren't too off from Texas, even though, you know, it's like Texas is a renegade. Really, they're just kind of rewritten a certain way. They're pretty close to Common Core, in all honesty. Yeah. Um, but think about in writing how many standards you have that are isolated from genre. Okay. We have obviously the grammar stuff, which can get merged into any genre. Um, and then you have some more specific things like figurative language can exist in every genre, 
right? Um, mm-hmm. Sentence variety can exist in every genre. Uh, descriptive language can exist in every genre. Uh, setting can exist in every genre, right? Um, right. Plot uh, can loosely fit in every genre, really, well, if you wanted to think abstractly. Well, it can, but even if if you're doing informational text and you choose to do an anecdote, that's still in a narrative format. So you can have a narrative format within a larger scope of genre. Right. And my uh, one of my first realizations about all of this was when Kelly Gallagher was talking about how he gets frustrated when people talk about how we don't really need to read fiction anymore and how fiction doesn't really apply itself. But he talks about how the best articles really are written with a narrative focus, right? The most powerful articles have Mm -hmm. some type of narrative structure to it that brings people in, you know, it sets the scene, it introduces the characters, it introduces the content conflict, um, and everything else, right? That's the stories move people. Poetry does this too. Sometimes the character is a little bit more abstract. Sometimes the plot isn't direct, but all of that can kind of exist. So in a, in a very large sense, my answer is it's the, so when it comes to kids writing about everything, what I see it more as yes, they all like I have kids writing poetry, nonfiction, fiction, rants, speeches, and songs all happening in my workshop right now, right? Just think off the mm-hmm. top of my head. I know all of those are happening. But what are we working on? We are working on uh, thesis statements. We're working on uh, evidence. We're working on providing information about something. And so when I meet with them, uh, no matter what they're writing, I'm always in this state of bringing back what we're talking about, right? Uh, Thesis statement is a very specific type of thing, Um but you can break that open to be more wide, uh, to, to be incorporated in some, cause really what's, what's a thesis statement. If you kind of boil it down, it's kind of like your claim that you're making in what you're writing. Right. Is that fair to say Ochoa? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the claim, uh, Dr. Carroll would say it's the promise that you make to the reader yes. that you're so, going to talk about those things. So mm-hmm. imagine this, right? Imagine if students could, uh, disassociate a little bit from just nonfiction when it comes to thesis. Um, and we can start thinking about what's a, what's a thesis statement? What would that potentially look like in a poem? What would that potentially look like at the beginning of a short story, right? And having those abstract concepts work uh, during our conversations. And then when we really want to analyze it in nonfiction, it becomes more concrete or this can work the opposite way of what I just said as well. And I, I love that. That is like my, my bread and butter of teaching is really taking these concepts and going, I don't know, let, can this exist in poetry? Can this exist in a story and really playing with those concepts? Um, but, but I still teach within the actual, uh, limitations of those genres. Now, it took me a while to get there. I didn't start that way. What I think is honestly, uh, I think will help um, Jamie the most is this concept of what we're doing actually right now in our unit. So we're in a nonfiction unit technically. We don't really have genreified units, but we kind of do because the, <laughs> the standards are well, collected in certain ways. Right. And I think that's where I was saying earlier that I go by the standard and we've all talked about it. Well, and this is, yeah. And here's the thing. I think our team has found a really great way to kind of push for that freedom, um, but still 
uh, hone in a little bit. So what we've done is we kind of broke this down and we're, we're, we've kind of found our model nonfiction text or informational text, rather. It's not just nonfiction. It's informational that we're looking at. Right. Um, and on one side, we're saying informational text is what we want you guys kind of focusing on, right? What are the structures? What are, uh, how are these things put together? What are subtitles? All of these things. How do these work together? Um, and having students write something inspired by that, because that's the genre technically that we're studying. But we also, like you said, leave it open for, you know, after you write your informational piece, what type, what, what could you write that pairs with this? Could you write a poem that pairs with your nonfiction piece that you wrote? If you write a nonfiction piece about um, how the brain works out music, which I had a student do that uh, two years ago, she wrote this whole piece about how the brain takes in music and how it processes it. And then she wrote a poem about people around a fire uh, experiencing music and the, the like live drums and stuff. And it was this really cool marriage of informational with artistic in that way, even though I am technically limiting to informational, I'm also allowing that freedom of, you know, express it in a different way, you know, and I, that, that play of genre, that play of marrying, cho marrying choice with a focus, I think is, is really where I think 95% of workshop teachers are going to feel the most comfortable with is we're studying this. So I want kids to write this, but how can we broaden this for the students mm -hmm. that are really at that level to where they can go? Right. And that's kind of where I was going with that. Like sometimes they think, in, I have students that will think poetically way before they think anything else. So I let them go ahead and get their thoughts out because if we stifle their thinking, like if we say, nope, 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 you got to follow this prescription, then now the whole lesson's about the prescription. It's not about their thinking. And so I, I just really think that their meaning and what they really want to say should dictate the form in which they say it. And that's an Abydos little comment, but that's really a, um, that's really a nice principle or a great principle to follow. Am I uh, teaching in such a way that the students are able to take what they want to say and put it in a manner that's speaking to them. And if that manner is a song, if that manner is a poem, if that manner is a story, then I say, let them go ahead and do that. But then, like you said, teach your, your uh, using your standards, you teach your mini lessons, and then you have the students go back into it. We have model text. So that's one of the things that I do is I pull from that model text and we look at that. And um, so, like you said, I am teaching nonfiction actually informational text. And then, but within that, there's all these different things that we're looking at. So I, I try not to stifle the students. If they start writing, I'm just happy. Look, write something. I don't care. I had, a, like I told you the other day, I had this student that ended up writing a whole piece. Well, the other day we wrote, now they've written, you know, two full pieces. And now the students are choosing one because in this particular unit, we're a little bit short as far as our calendar and the way it's falling. So we're a little more, so I'm not going to do three, four, or five like I typically do. So I'm probably going to hone it in a little bit faster than I did the other unit, and I'll probably open it back up. So, so it's kind of interesting. So how would you? Uh, 
Like, what would you say to her? Because she also asks, you know, once they're going, right, let's say she Mm -hmm. decides how she wants to do this. Maybe she is limiting um, to say, hey, we're writing informational. You can still structure it however you want. You can say what you want. You can write about whatever you want. Or maybe she's taking a little bit more of a wider approach and saying, this is kind of our goal, but wherever you start, you can go. You can start poetry. You can start fiction. Or maybe she's like me, and she's bending the standards to fit whatever she she wants to let happen, right? So one of her the, the one of the questions she asked is how do you manage that so when students are writing when you can literally kind of bounce from student to student and they're writing in a different genre different topics and everything how as a teacher do you find yourself managing all the differences in what they're doing because as a teacher what we want is uh, everyone kind of moving at the uh, ideally, right? Everyone going at the same pace. Everyone's going to get to that end of the line right when we need to. They're going to produce something that is what they're supposed to produce, aka, you know, an informational passage, a poem, a story, whatever they're trying to do. Um, but in this workshop format, some kids may go fast, some kids may go slow. They're on different topics or on different things. So it becomes, oh my God, where do I even. How do I how do I manage this this perceived chaos in a way that actually leads to students improving? So I, I'm I, that's really what I want to hone in on. So Ochoa, when you have when your workshop is cooking, right? When you got kids all over the place and they're they're really flowing and you really can bounce around and there's so many different ideas going. How do you manage that? So how are you? thinking about their growth from kid to kid. Do you, is there like a, a unit or standard goal that you have in mind? So like maybe you're thinking about structure. So as long as students are being able to talk about structure, that's how you hone in, or is it more differentiated than that? Maybe more differentiated than that. I do know that, um, we're, we're data-based and you know this because I'm now with you, so you know this. So we give them a pretest, and uh, from that pretest, you know, I talk to that's the important students, like, to hone in on too, right there. Not to cut you off, but mm-hmm. huh. our uh, our like we do tons of data where we're at. Like this, like I know it. Sometimes I feel like people think we're just like really fluffy duffy and we just kind of live in a world. No, we have a principal who is like, I need, look, you do whatever you need to do, but I need the numbers by the end of the day. I need the numbers. <laughs> That's right. And so we have the pretest, like, I mean, and so we have data talk. So before we even began this unit um, or this six weeks, um, we talked about last six weeks and then we talked about our goals for this coming six weeks and what we needed to do based on the pretest. So I've already had that conversation with the students. I uh, gave everybody their own. Um, they already know what standards they're low in. My kids know already know what standards they're great in and what standards they're low in. They've already put that in their their um, craft book. We have a section where they, not a section, but every... When it comes up on the right side, they they put in their data and we have conversations about that. And then on the left, they talk about their goals and what they're going to do. And that's that PDSA. And then I'm also making it digital. So, hey, I'm all over that. So I have their stuff everywhere. They've done it more than once. They know, I mean, this last time was a lot easier than the first time. So the point is we start with data. Okay, that's the point. The kids know what they need to be working on. So what I do is I kind of keep up with uh, what they're supposed to be working on as far as like through reading or writing. Does that make sense? So right now I have in one of my classes, and it's an on-level class. We're not talking about honors. In my on-level class, I've got a group of kids that are 
they're kicking it. They are writing two or three things. They're like, they're already finished. They, you know, and so what I do is I kind of keep an eye on them. I check in with them. How are you doing? What are y'all on now? Well, we're on this. Okay, great. Um, So you've already done two pieces. I have other people that are still in their first piece, you know, because they're trying to figure out what to write because, you know, it's an on-level class. I have all levels in there. And uh, so I said, so if you feel like reading right now, you can read. If you want to start another piece or if you want to go back into that one, and I might real quickly show them how they could go back into their writing. And on the left side, why don't you look for um, some examples? Why don't you look for... Why don't you look up some stuff you're not, you want to make more clear and, oh, okay. And then I go and I make my rounds around the room as what I've been doing this year. I don't really have, they're not coming to me this year like they did last year. Last year was a little more strict because of COVID, you know, but this year I'm moving around and I'll park myself at a, at a table. Hey, what are we doing? And I do a little check-in. Um, where I'm not as good as you as I'm not right now writing everything down, but I might go and make some notes when I'm finished. So the only thing that I could do to make that better is take notes as I'm talking to them, but I'm not really doing that. I'm just kind of taking mental notes and then going over and, and when I sit down for a second, I might write a few things that I need to remember and then I'll get back up and I'll go again. And so I've got some kids that are just listing. I have some kids that have already written two pieces. I've got another kid trying a brand new piece, whatever they want to do. Can I do a song? Sure. Whatever you want to do. And then, but so that's what I've got going on. I just do a lot of walking and I don't sit. I don't sit very often. You'll see me sit to do my attendance. You might see me sit maybe to read with the kids or write with the kids. But then other than that, I'm, um, and I'm always uh, talking with the children. As a matter of fact, last year, I was up a lot, too. And I had one of the students go, Miss Ochoa, how come you never sit down? I don't think I've ever seen you sit down, you know. So I'm up most of the time uh, throughout the day. And I do have one one group that's this one particular class. They're not staying together. They are all over the page. But we're all doing informational text. You know, I... uh... Not to shamelessly plug something, but when I did last night um, on the 8th, I did my live thing about conferring. People can buy oh. it if you want to, if you want access to it. It's over there on Facebook, four ninety nine. I may have to, <laughs> hey, I may have to pay to see if I can get into that. I was not a part of that, by the way. So I did my, my BD yesterday. So I did. I did. I well, I did tell people there because we, you know, they had some craft and draft listeners. I, I said Pam can't be here because she's off. Uh, she was training all day, and then she had to go do volleyball and everything else. So um, we oh. really got to we really got to do one together because I think yeah, you know, I think fun. I think I think you're the star, right? I think that's what people want. But um, in any case, the I, the I I just I talked about that how part of the way. I manage all of the differences that are going down is I'm just always moving. I'm always aware of where kids are going, but more importantly, I think, and I think this is the the big idea that helps me, um, and maybe to help Jamie, but the, this, this idea of my goal in writing is for students to 
get so much practice in my classroom that they start learning how words are put together. It's, it's the same concept of why we let kids read is we, you're never going to get better if you're never just playing with the act of doing it, right? You're never going to really understand story structure if you're not reading entire stories, right? If all you've ever consumed are excerpts and little snippets here and whatnot, and you've never powered through the boring parts of a book, and every book has them and you don't know that narrative flow. And if you've never gotten into like the, the experiencing of being 50 pages away from a book and not having any idea how it ends, like you, those are experiences that you can only learn in the act of doing those things. And what workshop does, or at least what it's tries to do, in, in my opinion, is generate those experiences over and over and over again. And what happens is when kids have those experiences, we're able to ask them deeper questions and we're able to do the more teachery parts of education. And in writing, for instance, when we want kids to really engage with sentence variety, if they've never written a lot of sentences, right? If they've never strung together a series of sentences over and over and over again, uh, they've never experienced how, oh yeah, I am saying this exactly the same way I said it last week. They're not experiencing, oh yeah, this is, this is kind of boring because it's the same, you know, the, the same structure over and over again, right? You have to, I feel like the, 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 catalyst for creativity and engaging and doing something different is knowing what happens or knowing how things can just get so mundane, right? Like students who write mundane pieces and write kind of the same stock uh, student essays or whatever are students who have never been given the freedom to play enough to understand why those are bad, right? The, the kids who write, who start essays with uh, uh, a rhetorical question, for instance, are, are students that haven't read or written enough essays to know why the rhetorical question sucks, right? Like, right. like they, and that, that's kind of the, the bigger idea of all of this is giving them the time to practice um, and, and the, the time to understand what it feels like to be within words. What does it feel like to put your ideas down on paper? You know, you're angry today. Okay. Right about that. All right. So you're angry for the next five weeks. You're not going to say it the same way, right? Doing it over and over again forces creativity. It forces change. And I think that is really the goal of, of this workshop format. So when it comes to being okay and managing this stuff, I'm less concerned with managing uh, how they're moving in specific instances necessarily. What I'm more concerned is them moving on the bigger ideas. How are their purposes? Are their purposes getting deeper? Are they able to articulate why they're writing something? And then on a really micro level, are they able to articulate why they're saying it a specific way, right? That's when you know there's magic happening in writing, when they can go, oh, yeah, you know, I chose this word. I changed this word in my revisions because I think I think enrages is better than made me mad. Or I think, I think vapid is better than empty, right? Playing with uh -huh. language and everything. And I think that as a, as a teacher, I'm like, yes, you are starting to think on a level of a writer. You're starting to think about audience. You're starting to think about purpose. Uh -huh. And that is, that's powerful in terms of structure. 
Why did you structure it like this, right? Why are your paragraphs here? Why are your line breaks here? And those are the bigger concepts that I'm always focused on in workshop. And then I work in the other stuff as the mini lessons go, right? The It's almost like I give myself room to just trust the process. And that's very scary for people who maybe haven't done it. And it's still, it's honestly, it's so scary for me uh, as I teach today, as I just trusting the process of workshop and practice and, and the constant conferring, which drives, um, student thinking about their pieces. But that, that's how I manage the, the chaos is I work, I work big concepts first, big ideas, meaning over mechanics always, and then work on Mm -hmm. mechanics when kids have meaning. That's, that's like my, my drive for it. Yeah, you can't really work on revision if you don't have anything to revise. You can't work on their sentence variety if you don't have a sentence to vary. So, yeah, I, I definitely get them to write. I get them to write quite a bit, I think. I think uh, the focus on, I, I call it the message, what's your message, but purpose is maybe the same thing or maybe similar. I don't know. But I like your, I like how you you talk about their purpose, and I think you get some wonderful things out of your students. And I think it's because you start with their gut feelings, the way they feel, and you, and I think what you do, Jacob, I think you make it. Of course, I've been in there. I know what you do because I've been in there, right? And how many times have I been with your kids and they go, oh, "You're not really Mr. Chastain. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know." <laughs> You don't know me like he does. And, uh, but, you know, inevitably when you start asking them questions, you know, what, what's really driving you? I mean, why, what is the, the center of, of your thinking on this? And I think, I think when you get them to start thinking like that, how did it really make you feel? Give me one word that tells me how it made you feel. And if they do that, say, okay, there's your word. Now start writing and they'll go, oh, that's not bad. I think I might could do that. You know, so it's kind of neat to, to, to watch even, you know, your students, they'll, the ones that have allowed me to do that, they, they just really uh, go to the, go to that and get excited about their writing. And I, I think there's nothing better than and even in my class where, you know, you give them an idea or whatever, but you don't give them the answer. You ask them questions that make them get to their answer. And then when they go, I can do this. And then then they start writing and then you move on to the next person. Uh, I think that's just the, I think it's just a great thing. I wanted to point out too, that our, our other colleague that we're trying to see if she'll one day get on the show to talk to everybody, uh, cause she's got a lot to offer, but, uh, she does the status of a class as a big, huge like her, one of her whiteboards, we've got several whiteboards in our room and this one, they're all magnetized, but she actually has the students, they, they have backpacks and she, they're all magnetic and they move across the writing process. So they write on there, I think what they're doing and then, and then they move it. So she's got the writing process up and then they move their backpack so that she can walk over there at any time and see, are they, they report this way. Are they in the, uh, are they in drafting or are they now revising? What part of the process are they in? And so it's kind of a, kind of a neat thing uh, there that I, I see her doing. I think that's one thing to, one way to do status of the class, but 
uh, Nancy Atwell is the one who promoted status of the class. And I don't think you have to do status of the class every day. I think that's a misnomer. I think that's something that causes people angst because they think, oh, I don't have time to get that done every day. Well, you don't have to do it every day. Maybe do it uh, three times a week, two times a week. It doesn't matter, whatever you need. But I just say kind of just when you're walking around, maybe have your clipboard or your uh, notability. Isn't that what you have? Notability? That's right. So, yeah. So whatever you're doing, your your iPad, me, probably a clipboard. Not No, I'm still not even getting DMs because who knows how to do this. <laughs> all of my DMs are coming through you. But anyway, I have a clipboard. Uh, but you walk around and you you take your notes. Where's this kid at? And and all of that. And then what do I need to do to help them? And then they, the more I do... The more I do, the more the students start asking me questions. And that's when I get stuck in a spot because they'll come up and, Mr. Chai, I need your help, you know. And so that's usually when I start doing that, where they come to me for a conference because they've gotten so used to asking questions. And pretty soon my kids start moving around and they're, they're all sitting at the beginning of the year. And then they're already starting to feel more comfortable and moving around as they need to. So, yeah, I mean, there's... I think the the broader answer is how to manage uh, a really wide workshop is, you know, go as wide as you feel comfortable with. Like if you feel mm-hmm. like students are not progressing enough, then tighten it up. And if you feel like they're really rocket and this might be different from period to period, right? From block to block. Well, it is, is for me. Yeah. And it happens to everyone. And I have certain blocks that I really do focus them in on their goals a lot. And we talk like I almost give my reminders about what, what like the workshop format every day. And then I have some where I'm like, okay, it's writing time. Let's go forth. Who needs to speak to me first? Right. And uh, I think that just being honest with what it is, but not being so try to control the don't don't clamp if there's no need to clamp, if that makes sense. Right. Don't, Uh don't, don't start off necessarily, uh, with, with just a a massively tight workshop because then, um, it'll, it'll be hard for them to spread their wings. Um, now it it just really depends on the kids you have, but I, I think, you know, if you really want wide workshops and you want to manage that, think big concepts, thinks about what all right, what, what skill, writers need across genre, like sentence construction, word choice, purpose, structure, all of those things really do lend themselves to every single genre. And if you have students or uh, work at a school or have a curriculum that really wants you to focus in on one, then use that as your model and then really push kids to kind of expand it in different ways. How can you play with informational, Mm -hmm. right? Like all of these genres, there's no... So I heard, I have one last anecdote and then I'll be done. So I listened to a podcast called Play, Watch, Listen. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It's a nerdy podcast. It's all about video games and everyone on the podcast, it does something different. Like one's a video game voice actor, one's a video game director, one's a video game music composer, and one's a video game like creator, right? And it's really fascinating because they they never talk about games, which is funny. They talk about philosophy and all this other stuff. And it, but they were talking about 
Uh, people that go to school to write. And he said that in college or in high school, wherever you're at, that you go to school to learn how to write, to basically sound smart enough to be accepted by whoever's judging you. And he goes, what you don't realize is that when you're out in the real world, what you want, what you need to write is as close to the truth and as close to what you want to say as possible in the way that you need to say it. That's what gets accepted after. And I'm like, well, why does, and I thought that was such a really, that was such a great teaching moment. Cause that, that's what I'm trying to capture. When you and I talked about craft and draft in the early days, we were like, how do we make something that is a system, but a system that is freeing rather than restricting. And that's where we came up with the draft book and everything. But this mm-hmm. idea of what is real writing in the real world? Is it writing these very standard essays because the best essays in the world, in my opinion, are the ones that are really different. When I find an essay that just blows me away, like on the internet, it's hardly ever just a stock format, right? There's storytelling and there's, there's passion and there, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into this. And I think the more we bring in that authenticity into our classrooms, the more that, you know, it might not fit perfectly into our curriculum, but it's going it, to, that's what kid, that's what people need in the real world. If imagine a kid that graduates and they can go, you know what? I really didn't have a lot of classes that let me do this, but my seventh grade teacher allowed me to play with structure more than anyone else. They allowed me to play with words more than anyone else. They're going to look back and know that you were the best. They're, they're, that's what they're going to do. And because <laughs> you were the one that gave them authentic stuff, regardless of what school wanted, regardless of the grade book system and everything else. Mm-hmm. And to me, That's far more important than anything else. I know that not everyone can push back like that. Not everyone's comfortable enough. But if you are, then I say go for it because I think it's fantastic. And here's the thing. Ochoa is a perfect example of how you play within the lines, but you also do exactly what I just said. So I I think that even even a rule follower like yourself, you still give your students this freedom to really explore and and have fun. And they're going to look back and go, man, Ochoa really did let me let me play with the language in a way that no other teacher did. Well, I think, I think that I've had enough older students come back and let me know that. But so I think you're right. I just want to say one more thing, at least if you don't mind. And that is, if you do start doing this, don't be surprised if the students don't trust you at first. And because sometimes I think when they start asking those questions, they're like, I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. I, you mean anything? You mean I can write every, I mean, you mean you don't mind if I write about this? And so I think sometimes that can be discouraging because you're thinking, oh my God, the kids aren't going to get there. But I'm telling you, it might take a full six weeks. It might take half a year, but eventually they'll begin to trust the situation because you're not going to be judgmental on their thoughts and, uh, and you're going to let them explore. And when you do that, they'll start to trust the process. But the students don't trust the process either. If they've never been given the opportunity to write what they want, they've been giving, as you and I've talked about, fake or not authentic. I can't remember what you used it, but uh, artificial choice. Artificial choice and artificial rigor. Artificial choice, artificial rigor. And I think because of that, when you go, I mean, I've already had that. Well, what if I can I write about this? I'm like, sure. Yeah, but that'll bother you. No, it's yours. You write about it. And they're like, 
okay. I mean, you can just hear the yeah. like, okay, you're weird. But then, like I had a kid the other day, I don't know if I shared this last time, but he goes, I don't know why I like this class. I just do. I don't even know. But it's like cool. And that's all he said. I don't, I'm like, okay, whatever. I mean, he's sitting in his seat and he's riding and he, all of a sudden he just blurts out. I don't know why, but I like this class. And I think it's because they're starting to do the trust. It's taken about what, eight or nine weeks now. And I'm starting to see that movement of uh, my workshop starting to get started. Last year, I had students, they they had this moment, they go, Chastain, I don't know how we learn in this class. I feel like we just have a lot of fun. And I go, <laughs> I just giggled because it's like, that's, that's what, you know, that's the magic of it is there, they, it, when workshop is really flowing, like it really doesn't feel, it starts to not look like school anymore. And I think, uh-huh. I think that's the magic of what we do. But ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of this podcast. Hopefully this was uh, everything and more for you. I know it was for us. Thank you for everyone who submitted mm-hmm. questions to the show. Remember, you can submit questions to us at craftsandraftworkshop.com. You can DM me directly at the Craft and Draft Facebook page or just any of my social media like y'all do all the time. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for those who have followed us on the podcast yes. app, which is also subscribing. Thank you for those who have rated the show. If you would like to rate it, that would be wonderful. It really does help us rank in the podcast apps and everything else come back next friday for another fantastic episode about reading and writing workshop we drop an episode every single friday so come prepared start your weekend off right with pamela cho and jacob chastain but thank you for listening ladies and gentlemen and know that we are here for you